Good evening. Uh, you can turn in your outlines to page 29, where you'll have a, a rough sketch, an outline of, of this evening's message, which when you turn and find it, we'll see is based on one verse from God's Word. One very wonderful verse from God's Word. One very powerful verse from Romans, the first chapter, the 16th verse. Romans 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you for the sweet fellowship that has been ours, not only with one another, but Lord, first and foremost with you. Father, we thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood on Calvary that we might have life and life eternal. Father, we do pause briefly just to pray now as your people for Alan, his family, and his father. Lord, how grateful we are for these testimonies. For those of us who stand here today and can say words similar to those of Pastor Alice. We give you thanks from the depth of our soul. How sweet it is to hear our brother and our pastor say that throughout his life he has had no teacher like his father. Because his father instilled in him from his youth a love for the word of God and a love for Jesus Christ. With one heart and with one voice, we praise you, Father, in heaven, for the fulfillment before our very eyes of the words of the prophet, that when Messiah comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and of the children to their fathers. And at the same time, Lord, we would be remiss if we did not pray, especially in today's day, throughout the land and the lands, for the many, 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 countless number of children who do not know this richest of blessings. Oh, Father, we thank you because we know that you, as Heavenly Father, are a perfect Father. And we ask of you, Lord, that you would help us to be that church to the orphan, to the fatherless, to the young boy or girl whose father has abandoned them. That we would open up our hearts and our lives and that we would pay the price and spend the time and commit ourselves to these little ones so that even if it were the case that they do not have that same testimony, at least they will be able to say that this man or that man really was my father in the Lord as I was raised in the church. 
But also, Lord, we would ask that you would do a mighty work through your Holy Spirit to bring these fathers to the fountain of grace, the fountain of life, to bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that they can know what it is to be forgiven. And being forgiven, they can then know what it is to take their rightful place and position of responsibility and authority to the family. And Lord, I would just add to my and our prayers for Alan this evening, our prayers for the church in Tijuana, which is suffering greatly in this regard. We would also ask, Father in heaven, powerful God, that you would be pleased to give Alan's father the proper medical treatment that he needs and an accurate diagnosis. And if it be your will, that you would heal him and give him yet more life on this earth to serve you faithfully as he has done. And we thank you for hearing our prayers this evening. And we come to you in the name of our great high priest Christ Jesus. Amen. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This really must be the bedrock, the sure foundation, the confidence builder of that message that we would take to the nations. We need to be able to say with a clear voice, with a clear conscience, with conviction of heart and soul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is God's power for salvation for everyone who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed. Not too long ago, I had the privilege of sitting in at a chapel talk at Westminster Theological Seminary on this coast, Westminster West, where a friend and a, a colleague of mine was speaking in chapel of that morning, and his text was this same text from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Because he is a Mexican, a Mexican man, teacher, and pastor uh, from the Yucatan Peninsula, his reflections on modern American culture and society uh, and American ethics or perhaps the lack of American ethics, uh, were particularly insightful. And he, was, uh, he thought it curious uh, that it is that a society which more and more seems to be shameless, in Spanish, sin vergüenza, a shameless society uh, works so very hard to heap shame upon those who would stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the righteousness of Christ as revealed in the Scripture. His message was on the topic of living without shame in a shameless society. And he started it by assuming the role of those who are really hostile to the Lord and the things of the Lord. And, of course, he had the, the Spanish-Mexican accent going, and it was really quite entertaining. He said, You believe that homosexuality is wrong? What are you, homophobic? Shame on you. You believe in capital punishment for convicted murderers? Didn't anybody teach you that two wrongs don't make a right? Shame on you. You believe in spanking your children? Don't you know that studies have shown that you cannot correct misbehavior with aggressive and violent and angry outbursts? Shame on you. You don't believe that a woman should have the right to choose what she may and may not do with her own body? Shame on you. It's ironic. He concluded, 
that a shameless society works so very hard to manipulate shame, all the while maintaining that everyone is entitled to his or her opinion. In this game of shame-shifting that Americans are so wont to play, I ask, what hope is there for those, albeit relatively few, what hope is there for those today whose shame brings with it the conviction wrought by the Holy Spirit, the conviction of guilt, the conviction of righteousness, yes, the conviction of coming judgment. Is there no good news for someone should he, should, should he become convinced that he is a sinner? Is there no amazing grace, no sweet sound that would save such a wretch? We know the answer, and we know the answer to be yes, a resounding yes. God's word gives us the answer. It is the gospel. When we stumble, and I was going to stumble on the way up the stairs, I was going to uh, try one of my pratfalls and have everything uh, falling, and uh, of course to my children's horror again, and then uh, use that as a living illustration uh, uh, for this part of our message tonight, but I decided to spare them that. It really would have been a good one. I practiced this afternoon, but anyway... When we stumble in our help to our feet amidst questions about our well-being, we often respond that nothing was hurt except our pride, right? And that's exactly the point. What about our pride? Have we considered that we are proud people? God has laid a stone in Zion which causes us to stumble so that our shame might induce us to humble ourselves, to overcome our sinful pride, and then to ponder the stone to reflect on him over whom we stumble. The proud-hearted, after they stumble, will blush, and once the blood drains from their face, will forget their embarrassment and go on boasting, making proud boasts. But the contrite will trust in him over whom they stumbled, and subsequently will never be put to shame again. Why? Because there's no shame left for him who is, or for her who has trusted in Jesus Christ. He has endured the cross, scorning its shame. The cross was a public spectacle. No death with dignity to be found there. On it, the Lord Jesus Christ took away all of our sin and all of the shame that goes with our sin so that we might boldly proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only remedy for our sin and the shame that it brings is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has endured the cross, scorning its shame. On it, he took away our sin so that we might boldly proclaim the message of the glorious and victorious gospel. Now, in the New Testament, the most common word for shame that you'll find, you have it there in your notes, is ischuno or ischuno. It has two meanings. The first meaning is to have a feeling of fear or, or shame. Uh, in Spanish, really, there's a word that, that gets closer to it, but anyway, that won't work here tonight. It's really the, the, the timidity uh, which prevents a person from doing something. Embarrassment, a pena, me da pena, uh, a shame or timidity which would prohibit or prevent somebody from doing something, like namely speaking up. The second meaning is the feeling of shame arising from something that someone has done. In other words, the shame over uh, a sinful act or deed. This first meaning of the word is contrasted with the biblical concept of courage 
or boldness or power. Now probably for the Paul's day, as he's writing to the, uh, this letter to uh, the Christians in the city of Rome, the source of that timidity or uh, temptation to be timid and fearful or shameful might be the intimidation caused by the great and mighty Roman Empire, the proud boasts of the ungodly of Rome. You can imagine them saying, look around you, you know, see all that has been done in this great city, the capital of this great empire. Look at the power of the Roman Empire. Look at the power of the Roman army, which can crush any of its adversaries. Look at all this might. What would these Christians have to offer? Where is their strength? Where is their power? Where are their armies? They don't even have so much as a temple. And Paul starts the book of Romans with the bold and confident proclamation in the face of the power of the Roman Empire. And he says... I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. Or it might be the word that it would provoke shame or timidity or or fear uh, because we are afraid of becoming a laughing stock. In Philippians, the first chapter of the 20th verse, it probably has this sense. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Fear that either for us ourselves or those who would be uh, uh, thinking of us that the sufferings and persecutions we would have to endure might cause fear, shame, timidity. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet, I am not ashamed. And Paul then would remind his hearers that they need not be ashamed for his sufferings. That they need need not be ashamed that he is in jail for the gospel. 1 Peter 4, verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. If you're suffering as a Christian, God's word teaches us, you have nothing to be ashamed of. You are privileged in the capacity that you are a name bearer of him whose name is above every other name. Now this requires that uh, we ask the Lord for increasing boldness when we are tempted to shy away. In those occasions when you would be tempted to shy away, perhaps to not speak up. We talked about that on Tuesday morning. This requires that you ask the Lord in prayer, humbly, asking him to give you boldness. That we rely on God to use us in spite of our weaknesses? No. That we rely on God to use us in our weaknesses, because of our weakness, through our weakness. When I was speaking to my wife last week, about maybe two weeks ago, some before a, t- a time of uh, ministry such as this, typically I uh, go through a panic attack about two weeks before, and I said to Jane, uh, Jane, 11 talks in five days. And she said, ah, don't worry about it. Just tell them missionary stories. That's what everyone expects to hear from a missionary anyway. <laughs> in my wife's inimitable style. Uh, so I am going to tell you my first missionary story this evening. Well, no, it's not. Come to think of it. My second missionary story. Equally at my expense. 
and it's especially geared towards the young in our midst this evening. When I was a junior high schooler, but then especially when I came to senior high, and even all through my college years, I had within me a hidden fear, a secret fear, that I was not willing to confront. I always avoided it. Of course, this secret fear didn't go away when I wouldn't confront it. It would grow and grow. It was always there, but it rarely had an opportunity to show itself because I wouldn't let it. I was very afraid. I was almost paralyzed by my fear of public speaking, of speaking before a group. I never did, and I never thought I would. Whenever in senior high school or in college we had the option of uh, giving an oral presentation or turning it in written, there was no question about which of the two I would choose. I always would avoid the former and opt for the latter. I was deathly afraid of speaking in public. Well, I could see as my life took the course that the Lord was leading it, that God had some plans for me that were going to require that I confront this fear. And yet I was still trying to skillfully avoid it as best I could. But something happened along the way. After I graduated from college and before I started my studies in theological seminary that made me come face to face with my fear. It was the week of my wedding. It's going to be one of those stories. The week of my wedding to my wife Jane, the week before. We had so very much to do. I was a truck driver for Allied Van Lines the, year, the, the last year before we were married because it was the job that could, could pay the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. And I had a target date. And by this target date on the calendar, I wanted enough money for our marriage ceremony, enough money for first and last month rent on the apartment that we would rent, and enough money for Westminster Theological Seminary, three years of uh, tuition in the bank. I had somewhat ambitious goals, but I was working to make them a reality. And I worked myself right in to illness. And on the Wednesday night before the Saturday that we were to be married, as I and my father-in-law-to-be were in Allentown, Pennsylvania, fixing the damaged holes in the wall of the one-room <clears throat> apartment that we were to rent. Hey, it was an ambi ambitious dream and goal, but it, it was still a very thin uh, diet. I wasn't going to be able to allow ourselves very much luxury. Uh, it was an apartment, barely. It was good enough. But anyway, we had a lot of work to do. And on the Wednesday night that my father-in-law Jim and I were working furiously to rip down all the rotted out wallboard around the uh, bathroom and to put in new, as they left to drive back to New York, I sat down and held the back of my neck and I said, oh no, this is a fever. And it was a fever. On Thursday morning, I had a 104 degree fever. On Friday, before we were to be married on Saturday, my parents called the doctor. My mom called the doctor and said, is there anything that can be done? He's to be married tomorrow in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and people are coming from at least three states. And the doctor said, bring him in. If it's bacterial, maybe. If it's viral, no. But let me see him. And they literally carried me to the doctor with 104 fever, and I just basically went through the motions and went back to bed. And as I went back to bed, I remember saying, 
in prayer, Lord, why now? Why now? I could have been sick this whole year and I wasn't. Why am I sick now? And no sooner were the words out of my mouth than I remembered of a dear friend of ours from our Moravian College Bible Fellowship, which Jane and I were blessed to be able to start of the years we were there as Christians and became a chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship during our time. His name was Dean and he was to be married to his wife Liz just about exactly one year before we were married. I had been a Christian for one year up to that point, Dean and Liz's marriage. And on the morning of Dean's marriage to Liz, that very morning, as Liz was going through all the arrangements and and getting the dress out and getting ready, Dean's mother dropped dead of a massive heart attack. And I had been a Christian for one year and we were all, of course, uh, shocked and saddened and even dismayed. And evidently I'd said some things to the, the, uh, the Bible study group that was there that day and some word got back to Dean because I got a letter from Dean three weeks later. And the letter was written by my friend to set my heart at rest. And he gave me a list, a litany, of reasons why. And he gave praise to God and glory to God. And he said, David, I want you to know because I fear that maybe our enemy will use this as an attack at your newfound faith. Let me tell you how the Lord blessed all of us via my mother's death on the morning of our wedding, Liz's and my wedding. And I had that letter. So you can see how it was that no sooner were the words out of my mouth one year later, Friday morning, Lord, why now? Then the Lord said, ah, don't even. And I had the reason. I knew that there was a good reason. And I knew that there was a sufficient reason. Because we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I would like to be able to tell you that the viral infection and Fever suddenly disappeared. It did not. On Saturday morning of our wedding, the fever was down to 103. As I arrived at the chapel in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I was so tired, I was so weakened, I had not eaten for three days. I was trying to get fluids and liquids into me, and I remember basically just getting to the chapel. Of course, it was a day about as hot as last Saturday at the Novinger's wedding. And I remember the room being stuffy. And I remember the music starting. I don't remember much of that day. But I remember that when Jane was coming down the aisle, that moment for which I had worked and hoped and prayed, I could not even look at her. Because as I looked at Jane, my bride, the entire room started to spin. So I would change my glance to the left and to the right and up and down. Jane wondered later on in retrospect, what is going on? He won't even look at me. Of course, she knew part of the story. And so as her father escorts her down the aisle and and we turn and we look at the minister and the Reverend Robert Outwell, who led my family to faith in Jesus and in Christ, uh, started in a sermon. And that's the last thing I remember. I woke up in the first pew with a cold compress on the back of my neck. I got made it through the wedding, 
somehow when the question was asked, who gives this man that he be married to this woman, I got to my feet. I wouldn't say, it would be exaggerating to say I jumped to my feet, but I was able to get to my feet and because I knew that it was time for me to participate as my father-in-law then was to give the hand of, my, of his daughter to me. And, uh, and that is about as much as I remember of the ceremony. But the, at the reception line afterwards, there was a chair that they put for me to sit down to be seated during the, the receiving line as people filed through. And during this whole time, I was thinking, how, now, how am I going to get through this reception? I really just want to go to bed. And, and uh, I had this incredible monkey suit on. Have you ever seen these tuxedos, guys? They've got these bow ties that will kill you. It was a real pain in the neck. And they have these cummerbunds, which are good for nothing whatsoever. I don't like this. You can kind of tell, can't you? I, that's, why I, that's why I'm a missionary. And they can send me where I don't have to wear a tie to preach. I found out that wasn't the case either. But that's why I wanted to be a foreign missionary. That's not true. But anyway, I was just trying, dying for that moment to get out of that suit and, and, and relax. Get, get into a bed where I could relax. And, and I thought, how would I get through this reception? But as I was thinking these thoughts, and then as we moved to the other room, and we were having punch and the like, and everyone was coming up and congratulating me, and I didn't have a clue what they were saying, it ca- I kept on having this nagging doubt. At some point at this ceremony, I might be asked to say something. And not only might I be asked to say something, but I have something to say. Because of what the Lord reminded me last Friday. I have a wonderful testimony here to God's glorious grace as it showed itself in the life of my dear friend Dean and his wife Liz, who are here today. And my unbelieving friends and roommates in college, I became a Christian my junior year, who are all here assembled, need to hear this. Well, guess what happened? Somewhere along the reception, as the things were going on about me, the best man wasn't asked. Maybe he was. I don't know. But at some point, at some point people turned to me and said, Dave, speech, speech, Dave, speech. And I had something to say. And I knew I wanted to say it. But suddenly, there it was again. My unconfronted secret fear. And I couldn't say anything. But I tried. And I stood to my feet. And you know what I said? Let them eat cake. Cut it out, Tony. (laughs) And everybody laughed. And outwardly, I laughed too. When everyone said their goodbyes and we were leaving too, I brought a change of clothes with me. There's no way I was leaving the church in that monkey suit. And I went into the bathroom of this church, beautiful church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It was a nice bathroom, as bathrooms go. (laughs) But it had one real defect. In that bathroom, there was a mirror. And I remember, I turned and I saw myself, and I knew of the disappointment in my heart. And I said, with my eyes open in prayer, Lord, I don't really care if when I try to say something, it doesn't come out right. And I don't really care if I should even be laughed at, if I should try to say something when I'm trying to overcome this fear of speaking in public. But Lord, I do care if I don't speak up when you give me opportunity. Please help me. We need to confront 
our fears, whatever they might be. And we need to trust and rely upon him who will strengthen us and use us in our weakness, not in spite of it, because of it and through it. The second meaning of this term is the feeling of shame arising from something that has been done. Peter, the apostle, would have felt the first meaning before the rooster crowed, right? The timidity, uh, the, the, sh- the, shy, the fear of speaking up, and he would have felt the second meaning of the term after the rooster crowed. Now the second meaning, the feeling of shame from something that ha- you have done, interestingly, is something in the scriptures that the Christian is to seek, in effect, not for himself, but for those who would wrongfully slander him. That is to say, those who would, in Christ, slander him. First Peter 3.16, the verse after the verse we looked at Monday night. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who would ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, yet do this with gentleness and with respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed, there's the word, may be ashamed of their slander. Titus 2.8 In everything, set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This requires, in order to do this, that those of us, whether that those who look for hypocrisy in us would come away empty. It requires that we live our lives according to Colossians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The definition of evangelism given me by my missions professor in Philadelphia, I made reference to it this morning, Professor Kahn. He said, evangelism is when we say, come in, Come on in and take a look. We were talking about this this afternoon and with uh, Bob Herman and I and others, and we were saying how it has been the uh, witness uh, of our own ministries over the years. Uh, it, is, it is our testimony, and I think so many of you would say the very same thing, that those uh, in whose lives the Lord has used us to have the most meaningful impact and influence are those to whom we've opened up our lives and spent significant time with them. And, 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 and the evidence is in, brothers and sisters, uh, is so clear that the overwhelming majority of people who come to know the Christ of his church and the church of Christ come through the, the winsome personal relationships, being invited uh, into our lives, being invited to come to church. This is by far and away uh, the foremost means that it seems, at least in the United States, throughout the United States, and I, I really am convinced elsewhere, certainly in Mexico too, where the Lord uses us to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. Come on in and take a look. I love that definition. And I think that today's church needs to hear it again. And I will tell you this. There is nothing that will impede your personal evangelism more than an awareness that if those to whom you might say, come on in and take a look, that if they were to accept your invitation to come on in, you would be embarrassed by what they saw. If there is unconfessed sin in your life, if there is habitual sinful behavior, you will probably not involve yourself in personal evangelism. The fact is, people are watching us to see if our words are real. If there are areas of your life of which you are ashamed, 
and yet are not working to change those areas of your life, you will probably not be willing to expose your life to the scrutiny of others if you are not daily trusting in Jesus Christ, growing in Jesus Christ, living honestly before Christ. There is probably nothing that I can say here this evening. There is probably nothing that I should say here this evening to make you more disposed to share your life. Our message and our lives are inseparably linked. So the closeness of our walk with God will determine how effectively we communicate his message. Horatius Bonar, the word, the quote is there recorded in your outlines. He's writing primarily to the ordained ministry. But I think the words certainly apply to all ministers, small m. We need a living fellowship with a living Savior which transforming us into his image fits us for, the, for being able and successful ministers of the gospel. Without this, nothing else will avail. Neither orthodoxy, nor learning, nor eloquence, nor the power of argument, nor zeal, nor fervor will accomplish anything without this. It is this that gives power to our words and persuasiveness to our arguments, making them either as the balm of Gilead to the wounded spirit, or as sharp arrows of the mighty to the conscience of the stout-hearted rebel. From them that walk with him in holy, happy fellowship, a virtue seems to go forth. A blessed fragrance seems to compass them wherever they go. Nearness to him, intimacy with him, assimilation to his character. These are the elements of a ministry of power. In 1 John, the scripture tells us, and now, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Thank you that we sang it just before I started this evening. Ashamed of Jesus, just as soon let midnight be ashamed of noon. Tis midnight with my soul till he bright morning star bid darkness flee. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend? No, when I blush, be this my shame that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus? Yes, I may, when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no good to crave, no fears to quell, no soul to save. Till then, nor is my boasting vain, till then I boast a Savior slain, and oh, may this my glory be, that Christ is not ashamed of me, that Christ is not ashamed of me. Yes, as Christ's ambassadors, we are imperfect messengers, but we carry a perfect message. So we need to say, before we close tonight, uh, we need to add this. All that I've said to this point is not to say, however, that we are to try to live up to the unbeliever's expectations, nor to try to live falsely before others, pretending to be something that we are not. That's what it's all about, to say to people, come on in and take a look. We're not to live up to their expectations, false ex expectations, or to pretend to be something that we are not. Rather, we are to be ashamed of the sin that remains and to deal with that sin that remains through repentance, through confession, and through walking in the assurance of his forgiveness. 1 John 1, uh, 9. But let us never be ashamed of Jesus, not of him, our dear friend, either by our actions 
or by our reluctance to speak of him to others. After all, Hebrews, the second chapter, the 11th verse reminds us, Jesus is not ashamed of us. Our message is a perfect message, even though we are imperfect messengers. Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter, certainly uh, rings and, 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 and hones in on this aspect of our message and the messengers who carry that message. We read in God's word, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Verse 13, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Children, how many of you have seen those um, banks? I don't know what they're called. I've just seen them a couple of times. They've come out in the last 10 years, 15 years or so. I guess I would call them camouflage banks. They're, uh, they're made like in the exact rep- representation of a Coke can or something, a very common, a peanut butter jar or a coffee can, a very common household item. How many of you young ones have seen those? But they'll have a false bottom. So it looks identical to something very routine and ordinary and very unworthy, without value in and of itself. But you take off the bottom of the Coke can, let's say, and then you would store your valuables or your jewel, your jewelry or your, your money in there when you were not at home, such as the idea. Uh, it's a safe and it would be a good safe because the idea is the thief would never think to look there. Well, that would be something which would be something of an illustration of the value on the inside where the container holding the value is in and of itself worthless. But it really would not be quite at the point to use that as an illustration of, it is, of how it is that we are, though imperfect messengers, the carriers, uh, those who pretend the perfect message. Because the difference is that the idea of these camouflage banks is what? That the person who would break and enter the thief would not find the treasure inside. They're made, they're made to hide. They're, they're, they're made so that someone doesn't find it. Whereas the jars of clay are made so that the treasure that we carry within would be so evident, all attention, and, and all of the appeal and the draw would be not to the outside container, not to the jar of clay, but to the treasure within which is the risen and victorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we live, although as imperfect messengers, conscious of the fact that we are those who carry the perfect message of the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to a letter written from Cindy to Becky, a letter of retrospect, which I think really makes this point very well, and to apply this to our personal evangelism. A letter to Becky. When you first befriended me, and I found out you were a Christian, I thought, yeah, fine, let Becky have her religion. I'm not the least bit interested. But I am glad that she has befriended me, and if that's her thing, it's all right with me. But then you invited me to dinner, and before we ate, you asked if we could thank God for the food. I thought, oh, how quaint. Only you didn't just thank him for the food. You thanked him for me and our friendship. It made me feel so good inside. I never thought you felt our relationship had anything to do with God. But then I thought, oh, wait a second, that's ridiculous. Thanking, uh, uh, think, uh, thanking someone who doesn't exist uh, for me. Then we went to the Ingmar Bergman film. And afterwards you said you studied the very same concept that was in the film in your quiet time that day. I never dreamed God would have anything remotely in common with modern cinema. 
Another day, you invited me to an objective, no-strings-attached study of the person of the Jesus of the Bible, the person of Jesus in the Bible. And when I went to that study, he seemed so real as we would read about him uh, that day and each week, each ensuing week. But you know, Becky, what, invi- what affected me the most? All my life, I used to think, how arrogant for someone to call himself or to call herself a Christian, to think uh, that he or she is that good. But then I got to know you. And Becky, you're far from perfect, yet you joyfully and confidently call yourself a Christian. So my first shock was to discover, to discover that, yes, you blow it like I do. But the biggest shock was that you admitted it where I couldn't. Suddenly I saw that being a Christian didn't mean never failing, but admitting when you had failed. I wanted to keep Christ at arm's length and let you be the religious one during Bible studies. But the more you let me uh, inside your life and the more I knew the real you, the problems and the joys, the more impossible it became to resist your Savior. Even your admission of weakness drove me to him. Yes, as Christ's ambassadors, we are imperfect messengers, but we carry a perfect message of a perfect salvation in a perfect Savior. Let us never be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, this evening we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed (coughs) to call us brethren. We thank you the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost and to die for such as us. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us each day so that we would never, ever be ashamed of him before man. That we would always be bold and that we would pray to you and rely upon you for greater boldness as we look again for those opportunities to make the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only treasure, either in this life or the life to come, made known to those you bring into our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.